Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored we have Anthony Gill. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great, Ron. I can't wait for this episode. It's going to be so much fun. This will be great. This will be the antidote to one of our most popular shows ever, which was Scroogeonomics. But let me read Anthony's bio. Anthony Gill is a professor of political science at the University of Washington and an adjunct professor of sociology at the University of Washington. He's a research affiliate at the Mises Institute and a member of the Mont Pellerin Society. I got to ask you about that. Uh, he's author of two books, lots and lots of articles. We're going to have a wide-ranging discussion today, I think. But, Tony, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. It's fantastic to be here, especially for the holidays. It's awesome to have you. Uh, I have to ask you, how did you get interested, I guess, first in political science and then sociology and now economics? So uh, when I went to college, I was a first-generation college student, and um, I didn't really know what college was about, and I wanted to be a lawyer for about one week until I went to a pre-law society meeting. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't want to do anything uh, related to that. So I went into political science. I was interested in politics at the time. Uh, I picked up economics as I went along. And as I started to study more economics, my interests started drifting more in a political economy direction. I went to graduate school at UCLA, which was uh, very fortuitous because it was in the 1980s, a place that was specializing in a lot of up and coming ideas in political economy. And that really caught my imagination in ways that uh, I never had expected. Uh, so, you know, for me, a lot of this is there's there's the hand of God or a little bit of providence at work in here directing me to my different studies. Uh, while typically that you know, folks would, you know, study GDP and inflation when they talk about political economy, uh, I started actually looking at religion. And at the time in the late 1980s, early 1990s, there was a new school of thought that was developing with just a handful of people by Rod Stark and Larry Yannacone and Brooks Hall called the Economics of Religion. And I was able to put the the politics side into this. And it took me down a whole new route is that you can use economics not just to study the widgets that we make and GDP numbers and inflation rates, but to study everything in the world. And as I studied religion more and more, I understood the power of of economics to explain the world around us. And the fact that I was studying religion also gave me a greater sensitivity to the cultural rules that we use in society that help make markets run smoother. And uh, honestly, it's been a long, strange trip, uh, as the Grateful Dead would say, but it's been a wondrous trip, not only wonderful for me as an academic, but wondrous in all the different things that I can you know, see in society and the beauty of society. Well, sure. Well, uh, economics is linked to, uh, I mean, didn't Adam Smith call himself a moral philosopher? 
<laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, uh, most people think of Adam Smith as just talking about uh, you know the narrow economy, the pin factory and how we manufacture things. But the book five of Wealth of Nations is a wondrous uh, exploration of different public goods that uh, Smith thought was important. And one of these was uh, education, but he had a special segment mm -hmm. devoted to adult education, which in other terms is religion. And it's it, he uses some of his most uh, exciting language, his most florid languages in this uh, the chapter devoted to religion, and it's really great. Um, in addition to that, he also talked about moral sentiments and you know why do humans you know interact with one another in peaceful ways, and where do we get our norms and our morals and our values from? And that was in the the theory of moral sentiments. So you know Smith is one of these people that really understood economics in its broad range, and I I'm one of these people that you know tell my students, this is what we need to look at. This Smithian lens of everything in society can be explained using this framework of economics. It's so fun. It is. And of course, you're at the Mises Institute, which means you got into Austrian economics. And Ed and I, of course, are big proponents of that. How did you get into Austrian? What, what was the trigger? Well, again, it goes back to me studying the economics of religion, and that made you somewhat of an outcast in economics. Nobody wanted to study religion, and religious studies, nobody wanted to study um, economics. So you, you, we, I latched onto a small group of individuals, and one of those individuals, Larry Yannacone, actually made it over to the Mercatus Center, uh, or to George Mason University Econ Department, I should say. And they're big into uh, the Austrian School of Economics, as well as public choice, uh, and viewing economics in, in much more of this whole, you know, holistic way. And there I started reading stuff by Peter Betke and, and Peter Leeson, who's talked about pirates and all sorts of odd things. And I was like, wow, this, this is a whole new world that's opening before my eyes. And the most beautiful thing about the Austrian perspective is that unlike Econ 101, where you're always in search of the perfect equilibrium, they said the world is kind of chaotic, but it's a beautiful chaos that's always emerging, uh, creating emergent order. And in, in ways that human beings gather together to solve different economic problems, uh, there's a myriad of ways that, that that occurs, including the cultural world. World of religion, of things like gifting and tipping and you know, all the different social norms that we have. And that, for me, that was just a, a wonderful playland to land in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and Tony, just real quick, tell us about the Mont Pelerin Society. I, I'm so envious. You're, you're a member, right? I am. And it's a huge honor. This was an organization started many decades ago. I don't know if, I'm not sure if it goes back to the 40s or 50s somewhere, uh, but a number of notables, you know, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, F.A. Hyatt, um, started this as a discussion to talk about these broad range issues of economics, of politics and philosophy in, in, a, in a way that you know, open the range of of exploration just beyond the the more narrow version of economics. Um, I happen to know a few people in there. One of my friends said, "Hey, you would love to come to this thing because we 
have these broad ranging discussions and it's filled with all these people who, you know, just don't focus on GDP, but have, you know, wonderful ideas to talk about. They invited me. I uh, went back for another uh, meeting and became eligible. Peter Betke wrote me a, a wonderful letter, as did uh, Bob Lawson. And uh, now I'm part of the, the society. It's it's great. Just uh, the great minds uh, coming together and thinking about great ideas. Yeah, I've read so many stories about it, you know, Mises being there and Hayek and all of that. It just sounds awesome. Uh, well, we did a show, Tony, back in 2014 on the book Scroogeonomics by Joel Wadfogel, and we had a lot of fun with it. And uh, But you wrote an article on December 20th, 2019, and it was titled, Gift-Giving is Better for Society Than Economists Think. And so let me ask you on the record, I know we talked about this before we went live. Do you think Joel, in his book Scroogeonomics, was he serious or was it tongue-in-cheek? So my connection with this goes back to his 1993 American Economic Review article. And it was one of these articles that was at the end of the uh, journal. So there's a lot of very serious articles. And at the end, of, you know, he had this little article called The Deadweight Loss of Christmas. And, you know, I, I, this was in, I believe, 1993. I started teaching at the University of Washington in 1994. And I said, this is a great topic to talk to students about because they can relate to gifting. Everybody gives gifts around the holidays. And, you know, I, I was teaching in the fall semester. So it would be apropos to to talk about this stuff, and I I read it as a really kind of a tongue in cheek. He's a Chicago economist who's really into the you know rationality and the market equilibrium kind of stuff, and I I, I read it in in a very fun manner that he's just kind of you know poking fun at the 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 perspective itself. What was interesting was that it started to take a life of its own. People started responding to them and it became a serious research agenda, uh, so much so that you know, Joel went back and did some more studies. Other people tried to duplicate his studies and replicate the, his findings in uh, different ways. And then he wrote the book and, and the book is fantastic. It's so fun to read and it comes, it's a little gift book too. It's not a, you know, academic right, heavy right. tome. And, you know, I, I read this and I just, again, I respond to academics who really kind of find oddities in the world or use their perspective to apply somewhere where nobody think it would be applied to. And that's what that book Scroogeonomics did. And, and admittedly, um, he's right. He is right in a very short-term static sense that gift giving creates deadweight loss. And but the problem that I've always had, and this is one I discussed with students and my colleague, Michael uh, Thomas, who's written a, a auth, uh, is my co-author on a recent article that we published, was that if this thing is so efficient, and economists argue that inefficient institutions get weeded out, uh, evolutionary, they, they fall by the wayside, why has gifting persisted for so long? And not only persisted for so long across centuries and millennia, but every society, every culture has some type of, of gifting ritual. And that became the puzzle that we wanted to solve. Joel Waldfogel set us up perfectly for that. And we want to thank him for all the work that he's done. Right. You know, you talk about the burnt offerings uh, that, you know, we give gifts because it builds trust and cooperative networks. And you even mentioned engagement rings. And I, and I wanted to ask you, have you ever run across Margaret Brinig's theory? I think she's at, 
about why in diamond engagement rings became so prominent in the 30s? Yes, that is an excellent article as well, too. Um, and if, if you have any links to these articles that you put up on your website, please link Margaret's article as well. Uh, the, to understand what she's saying in that article, it's important to understand that there's a dynamic component to the gifting aspect. And in a static sense, so if I could just back up and explain this a little bit, but in a static sense, Joel Waldfogel was correct that, you know, when you get a gift that you don't want, if you get an ugly cat sweater or when you know we got married, my wife and I got this, this statue. I know you can't, uh, your listeners can't see this, but it's this, it's an ugly statue. And back in the early 1990s, it was probably worth $200. And my wife and I looked at this and we we're like, oh, we would rather have the $200. Um, and so it, it becomes a deadweight loss. It sits in the back of a closet, collects dust, it wastes space. So he's right. But our argument is that the reason we give gifts is to make sacrifices for other individuals. And this turns the, the static deadweight loss into a dynamic benefit for society. What it does, and, and many people say, well, it's the thought that counts. We modify this a little bit in terms of gift giving by saying it's not the thought that counts per se, but it's the sacrifice that does. So my Aunt Kitty, who gave me this, was willing to take you know, $200 of her own resources and, and, and essentially burn them. because We don't really put this up in our house um, to show us that she's there to care for us. And, and that's a critical component of gifting, that I'm willing to give you my resources with not necessarily expecting anything in return to tell you that I want to be a friend with you. I'm willing to burn resources because in some time in the future, if you need me to help you out, I'm there for you. You can trust me. And that's what Brinig brings to the table with engagement rings, where, you know, why do we give a diamond engagement ring? Well, first of all, there's a symbol that says, yes, I'm already taken. So all you potential suitors stay away. But you know, the general rule of thumb is that it's three months of your salary that you need to burn before you get married. <laughs> the, the person is saying, I'm making a commitment to you. I need to show you that I'm in this for the long term. And to do that, I'm going to burn some resources, um, some very significant resources up front. Brinig's brilliance of this article says, well, you know, this didn't really start taking place until about the 1920s or 1930s, maybe a little bit later. I might get the time wrong. But when laws changed, there used to be laws that if you, you know, proposed to somebody to marry a, a beautiful woman and then all of a sudden decided to say, no, I'm not going to do it. And you leave her standing at the offer, altar. There were laws that would, you know, punch you down and say, no, you made this promise. It's a breach of contract. Once those laws started going away, society, civil society had to figure out a way, okay, how are we going to solve the problem of signaling long-term trust? And the answer was to create this you know, ritual, this, this symbol that you're going to burn a lot of resources to prove that you're in it for the long haul. It just so happened that it was diamonds. It could have been a lot of different things. The, the Beers uh, Corporation, you know, seized on this right away saying, oh, you know, you need to prove your love in the long term. A diamond is forever. <laughs> yeah, the jilted bride, uh, they used to award damages. And then she says in 35 or 45 Courts in states with about half the population did away with that, wouldn't award the jilted bride damages, and they looked for the alternative, which was the engagement ring. Well, Tony, this is fantastic. I know Ed, Ed, Ed's got a lot of questions for you. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe 
thebearishage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel. That's patreon.com slash TSOE. And at a certain level of membership on that channel, you can get a shout out like Blake Oliver did. Check out Blake's uh, podcast, earmarkcpe.com, where you can earn CPE for listening to podcasts like this one. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Our guest today on The Soul of Enterprise is Tony Gill. He has a new article out, The Dynamic Efficiency of Gifting, which we're talking to a little bit about. And, and uh, Tony, I'm going to pick up on that theme that Ron left with on this notion of, of gift giving. Is it also, I, I think it was George Gilder who I first read uh, who mentioned this, that gift giving is really the beginnings of exchange and capitalism or, or free market exchange. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's, it's so absolutely critical. Now, in the last segment, we were talking a little bit about Adam Smith. And so our understanding of gifting really is rooted back in Adam Smith. If you're familiar with the wealth of nations, there's a very basic recipe for prosperity in society. It's the division of labor, which makes us more efficient in producing things. But in order to leverage the division of labor, you need to extend the market. You need to trade with a lot more people. Well, that's great, except for the fact that when you extend your market, you start to run into people that you don't know very well. 
you run into strangers or quasi strangers. Excuse me a moment. Um, and so the question is, can I trust this individual? Right. I'm going to engage in a contract. I'm going to sell them some bolts of cloth and they're in return are going to give me, you know, bottles of bourbon or or something. And it, do I know that the bourbon that they're giving me is is the proper, you know, uh, proof that it's supposed to be? Uh, there's a lot of issues of trust there. So you have to overcome that trust in order to engage in that trade. And so how do we do this? Right. And one of the best ways of doing this is to sacrifice resources up front. And this is one of the most amazing things about gifting and explains the endurance of the institution or of the practice is that uh, Marcel Mauss was an anthropologist who wrote in the early part of the 20th century. And he noticed that, you know, any, anywhere he went, there were these gifting rituals where, you know, two tribes would come together and they wouldn't know each other. And one of the first things they would do was give some kind of sacrificial offering. It was oftentimes food, but sometimes it was trinkets and different things like that. What that signals is say, yeah, you know, I'm not here to rip you off. I'm I'm basically posting a bond. You know, I'm taking a lot of my resources and, and throwing them into the fire or destroying them in some way, so that you know that if there's ever a problem with our exchange, if if the, the bourbon that you requested for me or the, the bolts of cloth that I gave you are not up to spec, you'll make good on those things. And so gifting is really important for building trust in society. And I, I almost ask people just a, a kind of a, a, a simple thought experiment. Um, it, around this time of year at Christmas, you know, businesses like to decorate their, their storefronts. They don't have to do that. That's actually a cost to their bottom line. They have, you know, people paint Santa Claus and snowmen, or they put up garland and pretty lights and things like this. And imagine just going down a street and you see a number of restaurants that are all decked out and decorated, and then one that isn't. And what is the restaurant that you're going to go to? Now, you know, holding aside that, oh, that might be a you know different religious tradition you know, that somebody celebrates there. Um, if you looked at that one, that storefront that they didn't put in a lot of effort, you're like, hmm, they ever got it order wrong? Would they go the extra mile to, to correct it? I, that's my thought. And what's interesting, too, is that you do have, you know, people from different religious traditions that might not celebrate Christmas that actually do decorate for Christmas because they say, I want to be part of the community. I'm willing to spend some resources so that you know that I want your business and that if something goes wrong, I got the resources to make it good. Yeah. Famous scene in, in the movie, A Christmas Story, where they go go to eat at the Chinese restaurant after the, the, the burn the turkey and they're all, all singing Christmas carols and the Chinese restaurants all, all decorated out for Christmas. Um, now, this this is an article that's related to what you were, were talking about, but 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 uh, kind of a different angle. You wrote this back in July of 2022. And the title is, is Wokeness the New Sumptuary Laws? So, First of all, explain to our audience what were the sumptuary laws, and then how does wokeness fit into that? So sumptuary laws um, or regulations, sometimes they're called sumptuary taxes, were laws that you, you see a lot throughout history, uh, where it was taxes on uh, consumption, uh, specifically consumption that was seen above and beyond uh, you know, necessary for any individual to do that. So if people bought, you know, really fancy clothes or if they bought very, uh, you know, expensive food or things like this, there would oftentimes be either a tax on that uh, type of item or there would be outright prohibitions, right? The, the prohibition is nothing more than an infinite tax. Thou shalt not do that, right? And 
you know, what you would think about, okay, why are they doing that? You know, they want people to live a much more, you know, austere life and take care of their basic needs. What really is happening throughout history, though, is that as society becomes more productive and wealth uh, starts to spread to the middle and lower classes, you know, people who were, you know, of, of you know, poor means before now can often, you know, afford very fancy clothes. And that was a problem for the elite. Because the elite would say, oh, you can't differentiate us. We're elite because we wear fur and we have, you know, but we can drink the, the finest of wines or the, you know, do other types of behaviors. Um, so everybody started kind of looking alike. And so what a lot of these laws were are aimed at is trying to keep that conspicuous consumption away from the middle and lower classes so that it could retain its elite status. And even putting a tax on this is like, well, okay, the rich can afford to pay a little bit more for it. So all you could do with the sumptuary tax is to raise that tax, uh, to raise the price of the good up a little bit more so those in the middle or lower classes aren't able to afford it. Okay. And now how does that fit in with wokeness? So a lot of the stuff with wokeness nowadays, it, you know, you have to drive a certain type of electric vehicle or you have to have your own shopping bags. You have to, uh, in the state of Washington, you can't have plastic straws. So if you want to use a, a straw that doesn't you know, flatten when you sip it, you, you have to carry around your own metal straw and then wash it and all these things. And you know, they're positioned in ways that, oh, yes, this is wonderful. It helps the environment. We do all these you know, other things, uh, virtue signaling and stuff like that. But those actually come at a cost. And it oftentimes you know, puts a lot of ordinary behaviors just out of the realm of uh, the typical individual. You know, so, yeah, I mean, you, you, you heard about this earlier in the year when gas prices went up and uh, you know, people were complaining about the price at the pump. And, you know, a politician would flippantly say, oh, just go buy a you know, $80,000 electric vehicle. Uh, you can't. I mean, a lot of people can't do that. Um, and so, you know, basically by telling people that they have to live this you know, very woke lifestyle, it, it creates a cost that is is difficult for everybody to to uh, yield to. And it's really, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the wokeness that comes out, it, it tends to be upper middle class, upper class individuals, you know, virtue signaling, saying that oh, I live this very virtuous lifestyle. It's costly for anybody else to do that. And um that that's the gist of the art uh the article that i wrote back then yep you, you know got, got and I, i'm guilty as charged by the way you got two tesla owners on on this call myself and greg but we neither one of us bought for the wokeness we just both thought they were cool <laughs> I, I did have an opportunity to ride in my first tesla and yeah, i have to admit it was kind of cool but i am a gas guzzling truck driver so <laughs> there you go my pickup truck <laughs> Well, and I think it's 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 interesting because in in the interest of nonconformity, all of these folks dress the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in, in ways that again, the clothing that you wear, you know, the you know, get away from the fast fashion, which is cheap. You need to you know wear you know, clothes that are you know manufactured from you know, happy sheep that were cared for you know tenderly in open fields and you had you know symphonies played to them or something. Well, that stuff's expensive. Right. But it does. It keeps the differentiation uh, between the classes. And, you know, for me, I you know, come from a very working class background. Some of this stuff really kind of uh, grates on me at times. 
Yeah, no, I hear you. But we are unfortunately up against our next break already. Want to remind folks that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Uh, we are sponsored on our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE. You can listen to the show commercial free as well as our bonus episodes. And that show, that uh, Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? Find one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Anthony Gill, the professor of political science at the University of Washington. And Tony, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on inequality. Oh, um, I think it's very unequal. Um, <laughs> uh, inequality is an issue that has been you know, ubiquitous throughout society. People get upset by it all the time. A lot of ink has been spilled on this recently, you know, most famously by Thomas Piketty uh, in his book, Capital in the 21st Century, um, looking at it at, at, at a national level. And that has always interested me because I don't think where they're looking is the most salient. And we understand inequality as a comparison between us and other individuals. And I think our comparisons that we make are typically around those in our closest social networks. It's not so much, it, well, to give an example, I mean, um, you know, Piketty uses statistics to show how this, this 
uh, statistic called the Gini coefficient has changed over time. That it's, you know, it's become greater, and it's basically the Gini coefficient calculates. You know, do, does fifty percent of the population own fifty percent of the wealth? Does seventy percent own seventy percent of wealth? Once you start getting, you know, ten percent of the population owning, you know, eighty percent of the wealth, the curve gets bigger, and the area underneath the this line that they calculate gets bigger, and and they do that at the national level, but. I don't think most people have that framework in their mind. Um, I, in, I've asked my students that you know, say, "Are you concerned about inequality?" I said, "Oh gosh, darn, we are." I go, "Okay, you know, what's the Gini coefficient in the United States?" I'm like, "I really don't know." And they go, "Has it increased or decreased?" Well, you know, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are really rich, and I go, "Yeah, but I mean, those are two people amongst you know 380 million. Um, how has that affected your life at all? Where you tend to see inequality much more." In, in a much more salient manner is at local levels, right? I tend to care about the people in my neighborhood, you know, so-and-so got, you know, a fancier, you know, car than I did, or in the workplace, why is that person getting a pay raise and I'm not getting a pay raise? It, it's those kind of reference points where we actually can get a little bit more data that I think the the issue is more salient. And, and this kind of, you know, fits with if we think about the general culture, you know, sto- uh, uh, shows like, you know, uh, the Housewives of Orange County, or I, I don't even watch any of these shows, but, you know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and, you know, where you go see all these people, they're immensely popular. It's not because people yeah. are envious. They're like, wow, we're, it's really kind of neat. Someday I might, you know, get that and dream, or my children will get that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I don't think people you know, really despise Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos for the things that they've uh, done and the wealth that they've accumulated. And in many ways, you know, I would argue that, you know, Bill Gates has uh, only taken in a, a very small fraction of what he's actually given the world. You think about Microsoft software and, and how it's allowed us to develop the internet and expand these new things, the, the value that it has created is immense. And he's only took a small fraction of that. I, I don't think a lot of people begrudge those individuals for doing it. Hey, maybe you can get some people worked up every so often. But really, the inequality that that is a bigger problem tends to be more at the local level. And for me, you know, local level problems have local level solutions. And this is why I've been studying civil society much more is that the beauty of human beings organizing on their own and not having to rely upon, you know, government, you know, the power to resort the deck and redistribute income is that people in local levels take care of one another when they see, you know, these inequalities arising, especially mm-hmm. if they're, they seem kind of unjust. And at the local level, and this is a very Austrian economics you know, a concept that we know things much more closer to where we live and we can take action on those things better. You know, people in churches, people in civil society groups, people at taverns, you know, who form friend, you know, friendships. You know, somebody gets laid off and they're having some problems. Okay, they, you know, inequality is kind of increasing here. People rally around them in ways that we don't see and in many times in ways that political economists never study. Our problem is, is that whenever we see a problem in the market, political economists want to rush right away to some kind of government solution and and scale it up to some big problem or to, to some big solution at the federal level, national level. 
Rarely do we stop and look and say, hey, what are people in their local communities, the local neighborhoods, their parishes, the taverns that they inhabit, what are they doing to solve these problems? And that I, I think people uh, adjusted that kind of thing. And so the inequality that you see, yeah, at, at a macro level, it kind of you know can expand or contract at various points in time, but it's very fluid at the local level and people are very good at dealing with it on their own. Yeah, I think Churchill said that socialism was the gospel of envy, and that's kind of how I think about inequality. And and just on that, I want to get your reaction to this, because I heard Charlie Munger, who's uh, Warren Buffett's partner, say this in an interview. He said, I don't think the world runs on greed. I think it runs on envy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's true. And I think greed might be a, a result of envy. Uh, that if you're envious, you're willing to uh, try to accumulate more resources for yourself by violating the social norms and rules of society. For me, that's what greed is. And and and, and my students do have a very difficult time uh, figuring out the difference between self-interest. And Adam Smith talked about self-interest, you know, driving the economy. I want to do better for myself. And so I go out and do things that make other people happy so that they reward me. That's self-interest. And if that's done in a free and fair, voluntaristic manner, that's really good for society. What I think greed is, though, is that when you know individuals try to serve their self-interest by violating the social mores and the social norms within society, and uh, a lot of this comes from envy. You know, I'm upset that you know my neighbor got this, and it's just he must have gotten it unfairly. So I'm going to go break some rules as well too, and 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 cheat another individual and things. And that I think is the real the real big problem yeah it reminds me of that old joke from the soviet union when you, you the russian farmer finds a genie and he gets three wishes he says i want my neighbor's goat to die <laughs> yeah right um and and that you know and, and and we're all susceptible to that i know i am and you know my thinking on inequality in this is is really oriented i, I tend to get much more upset about you know inequality in my own workplace and you know amongst the people that i know that you know, warren buffett bill gates elon musk okay great they have spaceships wonderful for them but you know that that doesn't really impact me that much yeah, worldwide, I think poverty is more, you know, important issue to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And absolute poverty has actually been declining throughout history rapidly. And the reason that is occurring is because people are becoming more interconnected. Trade is occurring. I mean, Bono from, from U2, you know, recently mm -hmm. said, yeah, I always used to have these ideas. We just need to redistribute things. But it's really about trade. It's really about you know connecting people, and and I tell the, tell this to my students. You know, trade is about human interaction and relations. Uh, Glenn Lowry, the economist from Harvard, who's mm -hmm. now at Brown, always used to say relations before transactions. And this gets back to what is talking about gifting, right? In order to be connected with somebody uh, and and benefit from the gains from trade by us interacting with one another, I need to have a relationship with them first. I need to know that I can trust them or or be friends with them. And so many of the the rituals that we have in society try to do this by bringing us together as a community um, in ways you know through civil society in ways that we we can go to a different town and and go to a restaurant that we don't you know know who the owner is or the the wait staff is and just trust that they're going to give us a, a wonderful and pleasant experience 
And that I think is really the beautiful thing about civil society. And I wish more scholars would, would point people to this. Don't just focus on the problems of the world, focus on what goes right, the beauty and the wonder that you see of people solving their own problems on their own. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Tony, you wrote a great article on August 22nd, 2019. No, the business roundtable did not repudiate capitalism. And you made some really brilliant points in here. Um, about the customers and the employees and the suppliers they're all they're all doing the same thing they're exchanging with the company yeah and this i i've rethought a little bit of that article though i this was when the business roundtable was getting into this uh, the uh, corporate responsibility and ESG and social justice kind of stuff. And, you know, the business roundtable wanted folks to, you know, focus on, um, you know, making consumer goods a little bit better and, you know, workplace better and the like. But there's always been, my, my the point of that article was that that always drives business, right? That you want to, and I tell my students, I get some business students who come to study political economy. And I said, eh, let me tell you your whole business school uh, lesson right here. You can save yourself four years. If you want to benefit yourself and make lots of money, find a way to make somebody else happy. Benefit somebody else because you will, they will benefit you. Um, and that's not only true of, you know, the, the, owner of a business to the customers, but the owner of the business to the employees, because that's a trade relationship too. I basically come as a provider of labor to my employer and I say, I have labor to sell to you. And they said, yes, that's wonderful. Um, you know, I'll, if I treat you well and you treat me well, we'll, we'll both you know, benefit from that transaction. And so that's always true. Some of this stuff that, you know, we have to... The bells and whistles of you know environmental sustainability and all that kind of stuff. Those are fads that tend to come and go. Um, I'm I can see that something in the next few years will be the hot button item and things like this. But businesses have always had the the a reason to actually benefit their customers and to benefit their employees. The the businesses that don't do that don't stay in business long. Don't last. Yeah, you can go back to the J and J credo. I think from the forties. And it's all in there. We take care of our customers. We take care of our people. We take care of the, you know, we pay taxes in our communities and the shareholders came last. But if they did all those other things, and of course the shareholders are going to be well served. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, it's amazing. Are, are you worried about this ESG trend? I mean, it's taken off so fast. Do you, do you think it's a fad that will go away or do you think we're going to have to kind of live with this and fight it? Well, I'm a, a pretty old cat, so I've seen lots of you know fads and trends come and go. Um, I, I have to admit, since I wrote that article, I've been a bit more concerned about because is the 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 power of the mob on social media to push people in one direction or the other. Um, it, sometimes you could say, oh, it's just the silly mob doing it, but a lot of times it can you know, distort where resources are actually you know aimed at. And, you know, just charity for charity's sake, uh, just to show that I'm giving and stuff might not all be that effective. Uh, sometimes it can go to the very poor, poor resources. And sometimes people you know, get into this, let's be charitable and sustainable game when they just realize it's a quick way of, of gaining money. They can, you know, fool people and things like this. And so I caution businesses to, you know, yeah, you know, read the market, read what people want, understand what they want, but you know, stay on track about your core product, your core service. What do you do best? And continue to do that. 
Because if you do that, and if you've been making people better off in the past, that includes your customers and your workers, you will continue to do that in the future. And and that by definition is serving humanity. Yeah. And because it's all win-win. Uh, well, Tony, this has been fantastic. What an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for, for coming. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home on the next segment. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now a word from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash times up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are finishing up our wide-ranging conversation with Professor of Political Science at University of Washington, Anthony Gill. And uh, back to back to Vogelfold and and uh, the and Scroogeonomics. Um, I, I'm I'm not sure if you've been following this development, but Deloitte Development always does a survey of the holidays every year. Um, and uh, unfortunately, even with all of this. Uh, it, Joel seems to be right because the most popular gift in terms of increase to what people are buying this year is guess what? Gift cards. <laughs> gift cards. Yes. And so when we were, when Michael Thomas and I were writing this paper um, in, and, and also presenting at a conference, it's, it's always interesting because academics um, are not big on gifting. We found out 
Uh, and you know, when I, I present this to you know folks at the my local tavern, they go, "Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense." But you know, you you go to a room of economists, they go, "No, so much dead weight loss. Look at we can draw the Herberger triangles. It's horrible." Uh, many of them argue that we should be giving cash, which is. Uh, that seems a little bit crude, but the mead, the middle ground seems to be these gift cards, right? Is that ah, I'm giving you some choice in what you want, but I do want you to shop at TJ Maxx or, you know, go to Outback Steakhouse or something like that. So you kind of limit their choices somewhere. In in the process of, of researching this, there it's, it's rather interesting to find out that uh, somebody did a study of how much deadweight loss there was with the gift cards. And it turns out that there's probably more deadweight loss for gift cards than there are for actual gifts. And again, there's a lot of difficult measurement issues that we cover in our paper and, and talk about. But you just think about this you know, logically, is that if I give you a $50 uh, gift card for Outback Steakhouse and you go out and buy some blooming onions and, and have that delicious feast, but you still have like $7 left on the card, it came to $43. And, you know, you have the card, you're carrying it around. It's like, oh, do I need to go back to, you know, Outback Steakhouse to get the last $7? Can I buy a couple Diet Pepsis and, you know, a, a bread basket or something? Um, you don't do that. You It tends to sit in the your back junk drawer in the kitchen and occasionally you bring it, you know, out to scrape off, you know, paint or something like that when you're, or escape, scrape off the ice on your, your windshield. And and so it turns out that all that like seven dollars remaining, the three dollars and fifty cents remaining on the Starbucks card, that's the deadweight loss that we don't think about either. So um, that that seems to be weird. And the important thing too for gifts is is that it's it, again it's the thought that counts, but it's a little bit more than the thought. It's the sacrifice. It's somebody saying, I've, I've taken the time to say, you're part of my life and I want to show you it. And, and even more important, it's not just between two individuals. It's for society to do it as a ritual. The ritual aspect of, of giving. So Christmas is a, a time we do this. Valentine's Day has its own kind of dance that we do. You have to give flowers or other frivolous things that don't have a lot of useful values, so to speak. You know, birthday parties. We all know that we're giving to other people and making these sacrifices. And when we see it, we don't necessarily see people actually exchanging gifts behind closed doors, but we know they're doing it. And we know that if we're in a society where people give unto themselves when they don't have to, or practice the gift of giving and the, the graciousness of receiving, which is also very important, uh, we know that we can trust all those around us. And that's what makes the world beautiful. I, we, our paper on, on gifting is really that you know, market economies don't thrive upon greed or even self-interest. It actually thrives upon generosity. And there's been research that that shows this by, um, I think it's Joseph Heinrich at, uh, I forgot, it was Princeton or Harvard, who's done these studies that find out that market-oriented economies tend to be much more generous than more communitarian or communalistic type of societies. And, and the reason is because we have to overcome this trust. We need to engage with people. We need to build relations before transactions. And that's the beautiful thing about human life. Well, outstanding. The, the The paper is called The Dynamic Efficiency of Gifting. It's available on Cambridge University Plus. I know that uh, Greg Tirico has already tweeted it out, but also we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to it. Um, one thing, and I do want to get to the poem that you wrote around this too, but I wanted to, to share with you this little story. One of my, my daughters 
while she was putting herself through college, worked for an Olive Garden mm. as as a as, as a, on the wait staff. And here's an interesting thing about gift cards: people who buy with gift cards tend not to tip. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's so, odd. Re- related now back to your, <laughs> your other thing about tipping, but we don't have time to go into and you've uh, written uh, eloquently on, on the, the idea of tipping. But before, before, make sure to have enough time. Would you do us the honor of reading your poem to our audience? I would love to because academics and scholarship should be a fun endeavor and you should enjoy it. And um, our, our paper that you just received the link to uh, is open access. So please, you know, download the link, uh, share it with your friends, give the gift of knowledge to other people by you know sending them the link as, as well. It's a fun read, uh, I can guarantee it. But here's the poem that Michael Thomas and I wrote. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the land, economists were worried about supply and demand. They worried about waste and transaction costs. All these presents we buy just produce dead weight lost. The logic is simple, some scholars do claim. Without information, there can be no trade gain. Indeed, recipients know their own desires better. Yet, givers give them ugly cat sweaters. Hmm. Our problem is clear. It's a preference mismatch. Life would be better if we just gave cold cash. It was then at that moment I cried out in despair. Why do we give gifts? Oh, why do we care? So I started to cry. Tears filled my Adam Smith mug. A gift I was given. Economics humbug. But then came a sudden noise from the attic. Two scholars yelled out, that model's too static. They further explained, give gifts, yes we must. It's about building networks and instilling trust. Think broadly, they claimed about maximization. You don't give gifts once. Rituals create iteration. For society to prosper, we must learn how to trade. But the intentions of strangers tend to get in the way. Doubt about others is a transaction cost. If we fail to trust partners, prosperity is lost. Many say markets rely upon greed. Self-interest is crucial, but there's more that we need. A sense of forgiveness for errors that arise with incomplete contracts and other surprises. So we create institutions, heuristics or norms and celebrate publicly these sacrificial acts we perform. We practice our giving and kind generosity and hope in return for like reciprocity. This is our story. Gifting is good. It helps all our markets do the things that they should. And now that you've heard our very sound logic, you know that good manners are good economics. Wow, that was outstanding. Fantastic. Thank you so much. (laughs) I hope all scholars now write poetic versions of their papers. I challenge all of you out there. (laughs) That's right. From now on, the abstracts of all economics papers must be in verse. (laughs) <laughs> and, and if I could also mention before we close, you can find that um, that poem as well as some posters and uh, cover art that I did for my articles over at my website at anthonygill.org. So HTTPS, you know, slash slash anthonygill.org. It's a fun site filled with lots of wonder. We will definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Anthony Gill, thanks so much for being a guest this week on The Soul of Enterprise. It's been my pleasure. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? 
Ed, I can't believe it, but we're going to rerun our Screw Genomics show from 2014, <laughs> even after talking with Tony. So uh, give people a double dose. Absolutely. All right. Well, I won't see you in 167 hours then. I'll see you in 167 plus 168 hours in two weeks. Sounds good. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next, uh, next week, folks, and we will be rerunning our Screw Genomics show from 2014. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes with our interview today with Tony, and you can also see previews to upcoming shows. Contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.